is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we love to tell stories about everything here, including music. And now, Jesse brings us the story of legendary radio DJ, Wolfman Jack. Wolfman Jack! We just got a report here that hundreds of people are just swarming around the manhole covers all over the city and climbing into them. And a reliable source tells us that they are still trying to find the entrance to the studio where the Wolfman Jack show is taking place. <laughs> oh, gracious me. I, I think they found us. Wolfman Jack was born Robert Weston Smith in Brooklyn, New York on January 21st, 1938. As a young teenager, he listened to the radio in his basement where he pretended to be a DJ. As a little kid, I always listened to this radio station. I was one of, the, I was one of those kind of folks you'd call a radio freak, I guess. You know, I had transoceanic radio and a whole bunch of different other... You know, I listened to all the disc jockeys, different people, and copied styles, figured out how they communicated and what, why they made me feel good. And uh, I, I took all the good positive things out of most of the, the greatest disc jockeys in the world, people like... Moondog, who's Alan Freed, you know. Hello, everybody. Hi, all. This is Alan Freed, the old king of the Moondoggers, and a hearty welcome to all our thousands of friends in northern Ohio, Ontario, Canada, western New York, western Pennsylvania, West Virginia. Big John R. from WLAC down in Nashville, Tennessee, playing that good rhythm and blues. This is John R. Way down south in Dixie. Horse Allen. From Nashville, Tennessee, this is the Horseman. Magnificent Montague. The Magnificent Montague, starring Monty Woolley. <laughs> These jocks would turn you around and flip you upside down. Magnificent Montague told me one time, if you ain't sweating, you ain't working. So I always remember that. So every time I'm on the radio, I'm sweating, baby. I'm working hard. But radio isn't exactly the easiest profession to break into. And like many of us who work in the business, Smith started out working as an intern. I uh, used to cut school and go hang out at the local black radio station. And I learned how to run the board and everything. And I was spitty then, you know, a gopher for the jocks. You know, I go down and they even let me, they even let me pick liquor up for them in the liquor store. I was only about 13 or 14 years old. And I ran all the errands for them. And they taught me what, what I had to know. And I hung around there and cut school all the time. And uh, my, my parents thought I was going to wind up to be a little, you know. I didn't know what the hell to do with me. Later, Smith attended the National Academy of Broadcasting in Washington, D.C. While going to classes at night, by day he supported himself as a door-to-door salesman. And although Smith was a high school dropout, he graduated broadcasting school at the top of his class. In 1961, Smith moved to Louisiana and started working at country music station KCIJ. I wanted everybody to love me. Although his show was successful and had many listeners, he was looking for something different. In 1963, it was in Shreveport that Bob Smith created the Wolfman Jack character. Well, you know that everything in entertainment is acting. Even singing is acting. Playing an instrument is acting. And if you want to be a good actor, you create a character for yourself. And then you act it out. You become that character. Now I have fully become the Wolfman character. It's taken me over. I mean, I can't get away from it anymore. And uh, before I used to be able to hide the, the bushes, you know. The character had always been in me. Because there was the hound from Buffalo. And there was Moondog. Wolfman. See, it all fits, you know what I mean? 
It was around this time that Bob Smith had the idea to get his new Wolfman Jack show on the powerful Mexican radio station XERF, a massive 250,000-watt station with a signal that covered the entirety of North America and beyond. Outside of Del Rio, Texas, in a little town of Coahuila, the state of Coahuila, the town of Acuna, Coahuila, Mexico. Now, this is a very powerful radio station on the AM band. Probably the most powerful commercial radio station ever, ever was. In America, anyway. Yeah, like when I go to Disneyland, you know, I never have any trouble in Frontierland. I never have any trouble in Futureland. But for some reason, I always get in trouble when I wind up in Fantasyland. Oh, no! crazy? <laughs> You're listening to the Wolfman Jack Show! Wolfman Jack's personality sent energy through the radio speakers and attracted the attention of millions of people all across North America on a radio station just south of the Mexican border where the FCC has zero authority. It was so powerful, this radio station, that you could take a fluorescent bulb and go outside and hold it up in the air. It would glow. A car would pull up to the radio station and the lights would stay on. They never used it during the daytime. See, during the daytime... That ionosphere came way down here, you know, so it didn't make no sense. Even with all that power, you'd only reach San Antonio, you know what I mean? They waited till the nighttime came, you know. <laughs> then they could scoot that sucker out all over the world. But when they turned it on during the daytime to test out the transmitter, birds would come flying towards it. Psh, boom. And they'd go run out and grab it, cook it for supper. <laughs> really, they used to get these damn birds flying by the... T- turn on the transmitter for a half hour... They'd have supper made, you know what I mean? A car driving from New York to Los Angeles would never lose the station, beaming out at 250,000 watts. Five times the U.S. limit could be picked up all over North America, and at night, as far away as Europe and the Soviet Union. If it's a new record, I'm going to play it. If it's an oldie, I'm going to play it. If it's a fresh artist nobody ever heard, I'm going to play it. That doesn't exist anymore. Great artists out there performing, people like Bonnie Raitt and Lyle Lovett and all these cats who played a good bluesy rock and roll country touch type thing, which is really the happening music. And nobody can put them together in one format. It's kind of like this guy went, no, this guy's country. We can't put him in a rock format. No, no, she's too country. She's too blue. No, can't put her. You know what I mean? It's unforgivable. These magnificent facilities are pumping puke out. They might as well be doing that over the air because and then people are listening say, oh, listen to that. Oh, isn't that fine? You know what I mean? When we return, the story of Wolfman Jack continues right here on Our American Stories. Hello, who's this on the Wolfman telephone? Hi, this is Frankie Valley, and the guy you're listening to is one of my best friends, Wolfman Jack. You got the Wolfman Jack!
is Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of the one, the only, Wolfman Jack. <laughs> oh, telephone, where am I, Mike? Hello, who's this on the Wolfman Telephone? Hello, this is Nick of Fleetwood Mac, reminding all my fans to listen to the Wolfman Jack show. Listen, it's good. Wolfman Jack! Wolfman's mix of rowdy rock, verbal antics, and raw rhythm and blues began to make the news. His national popularity grew as stories began to appear in Time, Newsweek, Life, and City Newspapers, all asking the same questions. Who is Wolfman Jack? Where did he come from? And how did he get his hands on a Mexican radio station that could be heard all over the world at night? They would run preachers during the early part of the evening, up to around midnight. And then at midnight, they didn't know what the hell they would do. And they'd run country gospel, black gospel, they'd run all kinds of crazy stuff and after the midnight hour. So I wanted to go down to Del Rio to talk to the people who are running that station, see if I couldn't put this character Wolfman Jack on the air. So I showed up on the scene. And uh, the man who was running the station that time was a guy by the name of Arturo Gonzalez, the heaviest dude in that area. He was an international lawyer, self-made man. Became a lawyer through, you know, correspondence courses, man. And he made it on through, from, came over the border mix, and now he owned Del Rio. And he owned Acuna, and he owned that radio station. So I had a meeting with him the next day. So me and my partner decided we'd go out and look at the radio station. Well, I had a brand new uh, Super 88, you know, one of those big Oldsmobile convertibles. I didn't want to take it across the border. I figured I wouldn't have anything left when I got back. So we got a cab driver to take us over there. And then we finally got over there. He took us to Boys Town, which is just... Red Light District. You know, <laughs> all the girls do their thing. So then we found another cab driver. We wanted to go out to see the station. He says, there's no roads to the station. I said, okay, well, take us out to the station. You put some money on him. The guy took us out. All of a sudden, we out there. Black as you can see. You couldn't see your hand in front of your face if you raised it. You know? We're driving through these sand booths late at night. All of a sudden, out of the distance, See this little red light blinking like this. As we got closer, you could see it was a radio tower. And there was two buildings. One I found out was a building that housed the generator to supply the power to the radio station. The generator was big as a locomotive in a train, you know. I walk in, there's this great big transmitter. Looks from like out of space, you know. Big, beautiful thing. In front of it, there's little coal things sitting. These Mexican dudes, you know, cooking goat meat in front of the transmitter. One guy polishing the damn thing. I go to the back where the studio is, having this meeting. And while they're having the meeting, Reverend Jessup is on the air, preaching, you know, Yes, God, if you send in $25 right now, the Lord's magic number, Reverend Jessup going to send you a personally signed prayer cloth for me. You know, that, that's going on in the background. So I walk in, I meet this cat by the name of Mario Alfaro, who spoke English. None of the other people spoke English. I could communicate with Mexican folks real well. Even though I don't speak it, I, I communicate with them. But this guy spoke English. And I found out what they were doing. They wanted to appoint their own interventor. Because the one that was appointed by Gonzalez, when he was pulling his deal with the preachers, were playing bad head games on the boys who were running the radio station. First of all, they weren't paying them half the time. And then they would come in, if somebody didn't like what was going on, they'd come in and beat the hell out of them, you know? So they wanted to get rid of this guy. 
And here comes the Wolfman on the scene with a pocket full of money. My buddy with me, my Starfire Oldsmobile right across the border. What do you guys need? I got it all here. I started taking out the money and laying it on the table. Immediately they loved me. I laid out about a thousand dollars in hundred dollar bills. I said, I want you all to have one. And that'll show that you can trust me. Well, they were amazed. So immediately I took control of the radio station. From then on, it was a process of calling the preachers and getting the money coming to me. I sent the boys off to Mexico City to get a new interventor to take over the radio station. In the meantime, I walked into the situation and took over this radio station. Here I was going to present this tape to Arturo Gonzalez to put Wolfman Jack on the air. And here I was on the air. The next night, of course, I went on the air as Wolfman Jack. And that's how Wolfman Jack was born. By 1966, Robert Smith was now living as Wolfman Jack 24-7, had been broadcasting on XERF for nearly five years. Major music artists such as Todd Rundegren, Leon Russell, Freddie King, and the Guess Who all produced chart-topping hits written about the Wolfman. By the early 70s, he was living in Beverly Hills, being heard all over the world and making a lot of money. Maybe too much money. Because in 1970, without warning, the Mexican government took possession of XERF. And suddenly, Wolfman Jack was off the air. Clap for the Wolfman. He gon' reach your record high. Clap for the Wolfman. You gon' dig until the day you die. But the Wolfman got to work capitalized on his fame by editing down his old show tapes and selling them to radio stations everywhere, becoming one of the very first syndicated rock and roll programs in America. And now, here's Wolfman Jack. You know, I'm a real audio video freak, and I've tried playing with a lot of video games in my time, even before they were invented, as I was a real fan. And comparing them all, well, I come to one conclusion. None are as exciting as Harry Carey video games. They have the best picture, the best color, and above all, they're more violent than any other. Choose from the catalog of 456 different games, including Sidewalk Suicide, Machines That Mangle People, and my favorite, Mass Destruction of Everything on the Face of the Earth. Hey, when it comes to video games, don't be fooled. Commit to Harry Carey! <laughs> At his peak, Wolfman Jack was heard on more than 2,000 radio stations in 53 countries. In 1972, he was hired to be the announcer, interviewer, and co-host of NBC TV's late-night music series, The Midnight Special. In 1973, he appeared on the film American Graffiti as himself, directed by George Lucas. I said, somebody wants to see you over Universal, they want you to do a movie. I said, okay. So I ran over there, and who's sitting behind the desk? George Lucas. I said, what's the matter, man? You need money, right, to do this film? You want me to contribute to the film? He said, no, Wolfman, we want you to be in the movie. I said, oh, isn't that wonderful? And then I found out, he gave me the script, I read the movie. I knew it was a hit because it was Americana. It was what we do in the evening time. You listen to a great disc jockey, play great rock and roll records, you meet guys, you meet ladies, and you flash your car around, and you do the best thing, that's the most fun in the world. It's a shame a lot of kids can't do that nowadays. His broadcasts tie the film together, and the character played by Richard Dreyfuss catches a glimpse of the mysterious Wolfman in this pivotal scene. 
Are you the Wolfman? <sighs> no, man, I'm not the Wolfman. He's on tape. <laughs> the man is on tape. Well, uh, where where is he now? I mean, uh, where does he work? The Wolfman is everywhere. Well, I gotta give him this note. The Wolfman comes in here occasionally, bringing tapes, you know, to check up on me and whatnot. Yeah. And the places he talks about that he's been, the things he's seen. It's a great, big, beautiful world out there. And here I sit, sucking on popsicles. Wanting to leave? I'm not a young man anymore. And the Wolfman gave me my start in the business, and I like it. I tell you what, if I can possibly do it tonight, I'll try to relay this dedication in and get it on the air for you later on. That would be terrific. Really. Thanks. Yes, man. Hey, it's been a pleasure. Thanks a lot. Really, I appreciate it. On July 1st, 1995, Wolfman Jack died of a heart attack at his home in Belvedere, North Carolina. <laughs> Rock on, baby. We gonna do it right here. Rock and roll yourself to death. Oh, mercy. Give me some more. That day, he finished broadcasting what would be his last Wolfman Jack radio show from the Hard Rock Cafe in Washington, D.C. He was very anxious to get home, as he'd been on the road for several days on a promotional book tour for his autobiography. After a flight from D.C. and a limousine ride from the airport, Wolfman was happy to be home. He walked up the driveway, went inside his house, hugged his wife, and dropped dead. This is our American story. Show, baby. I hope all you people taking down all your pictures, cause we gonna be playing some of that loud song to wall music, baby. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and this is the story of a son's tribute to his father, and we love father-son stories here, and mother-daughter, and father-daughter, just we love family stories. The son and voice behind this piece, titled Me, My Dad, and American Pharaoh, is Gary Ginsberg. He's the communications chief over at Time Warner, and if you are unfamiliar with the name American Pharaoh, he is an American thoroughbred racehorse who won the Triple Crown and the Breeders' Club in 2015. In winning all four races, he became the first horse to win the, quote, Grand Slam of American horse racing. I'm a huge horse racing fan. Took my little girl to the opening meet at Santa Anita late past this December. Here's the story Gary wrote of his father, Irwin, in the New York Times. 
and they're into the stretch. And American Pharaoh makes his run for glory as they come into the final furlong. Frosted is second with one eighth of a mile to go. American Pharaoh's got a two-length lead. Frosted is all out at the 16th pole. And here it is. The 37-year wait is over. American Pharaoh is finally the one. American Pharaoh has won the Triple Crown. He did it. American Pharaoh has ended the 37-year drought to a deafening roar from the fans here at Belmont Park. When American Pharaoh crossed the finish line in Belmont Stakes on June 6, 2015, becoming the first Triple Crown winner in 37 years, I cried. After talking with friends who also watched the race, most of us men in our 50s and 60s, I discovered I was not alone. Many of us were overcome by emotion and, as it turns out, mostly for the same reason. We were thinking about our dads. For a generation of American men born during the Great Depression, racing was much more than a five-week diversion from the first Saturday in May to the first Saturday in June. It was an obsession. And the obsession was shared with us, their children, so that in many cases, horse racing came to define the relationship we had with our fathers and the little free time they had to share with us. For me and for so many of my friends Saturday, the one person with whom we all wanted to share this historic moment was no longer by our side. The joy and thrill of the race was tempered by a profound sadness. My dad, Erwin Ginsberg, has had four great passions in life. The law, tennis, his family, and thoroughbred racing, though not necessarily in that order. He developed his fascination with horses as a kid in Buffalo, during what was arguably the sport's hated. Following the exploits of horses like War Admiral and Citation. Between the ages of 7 and 18, he had already witnessed an astonishing five Triple Crown winners, and he was hooked. He wanted to make sure I got hooked too. It's a beautiful morning. Sunday, the one day of the week he didn't go into his law office, was race day. We'd pile into our Chrysler New Yorker and head from our home in Buffalo to the Fort Erie racetrack in Ontario. Once there, Dad would walk me through the intricacies of the racing form, speed ratings, past performances, class levels, before placing a series of exotic bets on the Phillies and mares traveling the hard-bitten southern Ontario race circuit. When he lost, which was more times than not, he'd angrily crumple the betting slips, ending up with a small mountain under his seat by the end of the day. That horse, named Secretariat, is the reason why one of the greatest crowds in horse racing history has turned out here at Belmont Park in New York to see a... But we were in front of our Zenith TV for the best race of all, the 1973 Belmont Stakes. Secretariat had already run the fastest Kentucky Derby and Preakness in history and came to the race of champions as the prohibitive favorite. For my dad, it represented the best chance to end a 25-year Triple Crown drought. 
My 11-year-old self sensed the moment's historic significance, so I brought my tape recorder. And you will see, and Secretariat being led, he is number is two, but he goes into the number one post. Listening to that cassette today, I can hear the tension in my father's voice as the horses make their way to the starting gate. He yells at me to move away from the screen, though the race is still a minute from post. We're ready to go for this tremendous Belmont Then the race starts, and it quickly becomes a two-horse contest, with Secretariat pulling away after the half-mile pole. We're quiet at first, but the silence breaks when I shout, He's going to win! My father shushes me, and we both go quiet again until Secretariat rounds the final turn. Secretariat is widening now. He is moving like a tremendous machine. Secretariat by 12. Secretariat by 14 lengths on the turn. Sam is dropping back. My father starts repeating, Oh my God, oh my God. But Secretariat is all alone. He's out there almost a sixteenth of a mile away from the rest of the horses. While I'm unable to control my prepubescent excitement, I begin screaming again at the screen. Secretariat has opened a 22-length lead. He is going to be the triple crown winner. Here comes Secretariat to the wire. An unbelievable, an amazing performance. He hits the finish 25 lengths in front. In the years that followed, we watched Seattle Slough and Affirm win their triple crowns and continued our Sunday traditions at the track. Eventually, with me adding to the mountain under our seats, thanks to my paper route earnings. Then I left Buffalo for college, law school, and life in New York, and another triple crown drought set in. A decade ago, my father found out he had Alzheimer's. His mom, dad, and brother had all had the disease. He had feared it his entire adult life, and now he was to suffer the same fate. He was forced into a retirement he never wanted. But his love of horses endured. Three summers running, I took him to the Saratoga race course until the betting became too complicated for him. But the Belmont still held a special place. Even as his brilliant mind declined, twice he managed to travel by himself from Buffalo to New York with hopes of witnessing one more triple crown alongside his son. And twice we were denied. Standing side by side, watching first Smarty Jones and then Big Brown lose in heartbreaking fashion, were among the happiest moments of my dad's retirement and of my adult life. Victor, you just won the Belmont Stakes and with it, ended the 37-year drought and got your first Triple Crown finally. Just after the Belmont this year, my face still flushed from crying, I called my mom in Buffalo to see if dad had watched. No, they hadn't watched the race. He wouldn't know a horse from a rabbit, she said. Instead, they were sitting at the table having dinner. My father oblivious that his 37-year wait for another Triple Crown winner was over. Well, you might not be able to feel how fast he's going, but I can feel how happy you are. Let's go to Kenny Rice. I started to cry all over again. Great job on that, Greg, and what a story. I'm tearing up a little bit because, well, my dad took me to the track and he took me to basketball games and took me to Atlantic City and had me play poker because he said a man who can't play a proper game of poker is not a man. I'm still working on that, Dad. And uh, I'm taking my little girl on rituals. I mean, I'm she's Santa Anita. I've taken her to the far turn. 
Belmont, you name it. She's going to go to every great track in this country. Fishing, shooting, poker, whatever it is, do it with your kids. This is what they remember. You're hearing it in Gary's voice. Family here at Our American Stories. We care about it. We talk about it. It's all there is. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. More after these messages. our American stories, although you may not know what auto-tuning is, there's no doubt that you've heard it. In fact, you just did with our bumper song from the Black Eyed Peas, Boom Boom Pow. Auto-tune is an audio processor that was designed in 1997 to disguise or perfectly tune vocals or instruments that were off-pitch. Is this new music technology a good or a bad thing? And is it really new? Here's Greg Hengler with the story. Autotune has become the Botox of pop music. But like the commonly used neurotoxin, could autotuning be beneficial? Let's take a closer look. Tonight we present a new miracle of electricity, the Sonovox. Harry Babbitt, using special Sonovox units, gives diction to the tones of the instruments as they play. Harry forms the words, but the instruments sing them. Sing it, saxes! Here's music writer Dave Tompkins. Like we always have this attraction from, from an early age at altering our voices. I think that happens with you know, hooking up to the uh, clown balloon dispenser at a birthday party. And, and here's a way to um, explore different characters and what's more human than wanting to be something else. Here's musician Ben Harper. More bounce to the ounce. I mean, when that dropped, driving down Crenshaw Boulevard in L.A. playing Roger or Zap, you're sure to get a girl's attention. Marvin Gaye or Roger Troutman? Can't miss. Roger Troutman and Zap, to get that sound, you had to take a tube, hook it up to a, an electrical charge, and it would send an electrical current down your throat that would then go through a box and go through whatever instrument you were playing. Your voice, through the electrical charge and current that was going into your throat, was coloring whatever instrument you were playing. After an hour of recording with that thing, it hurt. So now they have what's called auto-tune, and it's just the processed version of that sound, which sounds exactly like it, and is equally as cool. The television show South Park has had some fun with the auto-tune debate. Here's a scene where Stan has discovered some troubling news about his father. Uh, hey, Dad, 
I need to talk to you. The chick that wrote the theme song to the new Hunger Games movie is you? Yeah. Wait, wait Lord sounds like a girl. Auto-tune. You want to see how I do it? I use this program to import the recordings I make on my phone. Sparkling thoughts. Give me the hope to go on. Dad, Lord's music is actually really good. Thanks, but it gets even better when I add the drum loops. Yeah, yeah, feeling good on a Wednesday. Then with the computer, I can actually quantize Sparkling, everything. Feeling good, feeling Backup good. Backup instruments. And yeah, then finally, yeah, I use the yeah, auto-tune. Yeah. feeling good on a Wednesday. Stan. Here's Hall of Fame singer songwriter and record producer Linda Perry. Would you auto tune Patti Smith? No. Carol King? No. Janis Joplin? Oh my God. She, if they put auto tune on Janis Joplin, she would sound like that belief. And you know that's where that came from. That sound came from, and I love Cher, but they must have accidentally left it on while she was singing. I know this is what happened. And then it went, and they were like, what is that? That's cool. Here's culture writer Oliver Wang. What happens a generation or half a generation later is that R&B artists and hip-hop artists they discover they actually really like the sound of auto-tune. They like the sound of this kind of robotic otherworldliness, something that sounds completely unnatural. One of the first people to do it in a big way that surprised a lot of people was actually Kanye West. I'm not loving you way I wanted to. Here's musician Bonnie Ray. There's something great about not fixing stuff. You know, I leave funky notes in all the time and slide notes that aren't quite up to it, and I'll, I'll, I'll tune it back up, and it just loses a lot of what the edge to it. Here again is Ben Harper. Now that auto-tune has become a sound, if you want that as part of your sound, by all means, it's a sound, and it works. So if you want that as your sound, go. But if you want your voice as your sound, no effects. Start working on scales. Here again is Linda Perry. There's not a lot of Christina's. That woman can sing. And she can change her voice and do so many wonderful things with it. Her problem is her perfectionism. That's where she gets into trouble, when she tries to perfect the vocal. Troubled waters there, but when Christina just sings. And as soon as she said, don't look at me, I heard it. The vulnerability in her voice, the insecurity that, oh, she really doesn't think she's all that. Every day is so wonderful suddenly. It's letting go of ego and being open to failing. Now and then I get insecure. The beautiful thing about that version is 
when Christina sang it, it was just, it, it was emotional. That was the take that I knew, right? That that was the master take. I added the drums and everything after the fact. And Christina kept on coming to me. I gotta re-sing that. You know, when can I re-sing that? I'm like, re-sing it? Are you crazy? This is magical. Like people would die for this emotion. So she kept on saying, but wait a minute, it's not, that was my first take. I'm like, I know. She's like, but I can do better. I go, I know you can. That's why you're not gonna re-sing it. It's like seven months of this. Like the album is, you know, done. It's being mastered and she's still going at it. So we go in the studio, put it all up and she starts singing. And I just literally, just one time, she's, I mean, we're like maybe a minute into the song. If even that, I just stopped and I'm like, we're done. And she's like, what do you mean we're done? I'm like, I can hear already you're over singing you're over-perfecting, and you're ruining this song. I'm like, oh, what does she mean? God, what am I doing? What am I doing wrong? I don't understand this form of perfection. And then I finally realized there is no perfection. It's about finding the beauty in the cracks and the holes and the imperfections that's so perfect and beautiful. It's actually about people allowing themselves to be vulnerable and insecure and not always feeling like they're gonna get everything right. Because that's what the true beauty of life is. It's about not really getting it right. It's just getting it right in the moment of who you are right now. Certainly while all music can be a mathematical equation to varying degrees, soul isn't, soulfulness isn't. There's such a huge, great, soulful place for technology and music. There is. But there is a place where you just go over the edge and lose the, uh, the center of the circle. Every generation of people who listen and write and, and think about music always fear that technology is going to create this homogenous sameness and that everything's going to sound the same. And you can find those complaints going back to the 1920s and 30s. You know, here we are almost 100 years later, and. If you look back on the history of it, you would never say, oh yeah, music in all of these different generations and eras all sounded the same. We can always find difference. We can always find things that stand out to us as being unique. The ones that we remember are the ones that did it really well and, and were different and innovative enough to stand the test of time. It's not the technology that makes great music, it's what's in your heart. We don't really judge a vocal on an intellectual level. What we respond to is some feeling that they're honest performances. And when we start to feel like this singer is carrying some truth to us, we make the deeper investment. This is not just the singer-songwriters. It's not just that confessional mode. It's James Brown. It could be chic. But we know when it's, you know, this is where we start to run out of words and we turn to authentic. 
For Our American Stories, I'm Greg Hengler. Great job as always, Greg. And well, you haven't heard that one before because I hadn't. Auto tune versus imperfection. The story of music in a way and so much more in technology. This is Lee Habib and this is Our American Stories. OurAmericanNetwork.org. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between. And we want to hear your stories, too. Send them to us at OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. We love to bring you wise voices, too, who can share their wealth of life experience and wisdom with us. This nation has so many of them. They're in a town near you, and, well, we bring them to you. They're not famous people. But my goodness, they're much more important. They're not seeking fame, but boy, do they have something to offer called wisdom. And Frank Hanna, well, he has one of those voices. He's a husband, a father. He's an investor who lives in the Atlanta area and who we now get to hear from in our latest edition of our regular feature, Don't Be a Fool, with Frank Hanna. Who does wealth belong to? Who do the material goods of this earth belong to. And you know, interestingly enough, no matter what faith tradition someone may come from, or even for an avowed pagan and avowed atheist, for most people there is a sense somewhere within them that if I have more food than I need on my plate, and you are sitting next to me, and you are starving, that ought to give you some of mine. Now, obviously, I'm giving the most blatant example of when one ought to share one's goods, okay? But I think it's hard to imagine anyone other than someone who's just avowed toward evil, right? Who would say, no, I have way more than I can even eat on my plate, someone's starving next to me and I'm not going to give them something to eat. I mean, almost everyone would say, well, yes, you would, you would share that. And if you push them further, they'd probably say, you're obliged to share that. So once we, even if it's all yours, even if you bought your food with your money, or even if you grew all this food on your farm, you toiled, you worked, even with all that. You, you did everything, boom, there it is, the food's on your plate. You're still probably obliged to give them something. So once we acknowledge that, we're on our way towards saying, hmm, I'm not gonna live forever. There are a lot of earthly goods here. 
these things here on earth probably don't exist just for me. So once you, you know, once you acknowledge that, which almost everybody would kind of have to acknowledge that to some degree, okay? We then bump up against, though, this notion of private property. So the question is how to, how to reconcile. You know, Thomas Aquinas talked about the needs for private property. And he gave some very good reasons that private property exists. And he, he studied a lot of different societies. And, and he found that people actually, they take care of things better when it's their own private property. They're more likely to bring more out, be more productive with it. He said there's more order in society if things are private. You know, because you're not always squabbling over whose turn or this or that to, to, to use the horse for a plow. You know, there's, there's more order in society. And he and many other great thinkers, and most societies have realized, you know, allowing for private ownership promotes the well-being of everyone, okay? So we have these two kind of competing realizations. One is that private property is a good thing. And yet another is, you know, the goods of this earth aren't just here for me. That there's a universal destination. And in fact, that destination, that destiny for goods is to be used for everyone. Therein lies the rub for anyone who has more than they need. Because the question then becomes, how ought I to live? You know, and, and especially for Americans who we are, the 300 million people who live in this country are wealthier than 99.9% .9 of the human beings who have ever lived. Wealthier in terms of material terms. We just, we just have so much stuff, so much, so much food, so much shelter, so much clothing. In this country, yes, there are a few homeless people, many, many times because of mental illness and things, which is terrible. But the point is, we're not lacking for the money to feed everyone in this country. And most people actually do have full bellies. Not only do they have full bellies and a roof over their head and clothes on their back, over 95% of the people have big, you know, color TVs and air conditioning and all that kind of thing too. So, I mean, the, the, the material wealth is just incredible. I think that's one reason you see in the U.S. it's one of the most generous countries in the world. People do give away a lot of their money because they do feel this sense. The difficulty comes, I think, in determining, yeah, but let's say that I'm, I don't want to just offer a guilt offering of, of money, that I want to live the right way we are stewards of the wealth we have. What is a steward? A steward is somebody who watches over something, not as if they own it and can do anything they want with it, but more as someone who has a responsibility for administering something. Are they entitled to just compensation for administering it? Sure. You know, if I put something of mine uh, if, if I ask you to watch over it for 20 years and watch over, let's say, a beach house, right, and take care of it, I'm fine paying you for watching over that house, but I don't want you to start thinking that house is yours, right, because I just put you in charge of it to watch over it for when I need it. And so I think it's healthy for us to consider that the material goods that are in our possession, that we're stewards of those, uh, that we don't own them. And you know, in the book I compare, imagine that the president of the bank starts to think that the money in the vault that the depositors have put in there is his own money. And we've got a problem then if he starts spending it like it's his own money. 
It's not his money. We put it in the vault and we asked him to watch it. And you're listening to Frank Hanna. And by the way, the book he was referring to was What Your Money Means and How to Use It Well. And you can get it at Amazon.com. Also, he's written A Graduate's Guide to Life, Three Things They Didn't Teach You in College That Could Make All the Difference. And when we come back, we'll continue with Frank Hanna and Don't Be a Fool after these messages. And we continue here on Our American Stories with Don't Be a Fool with Frank Hanna. And Frank is a husband, a father, and an investor who lives in the Atlanta area. And Frank also happens to be Lebanese-American, and, and I am too. And so in the end, we Lebanese folks, we, we sort of know each other. It's really crazy how we, we sort of stick together, find each other, and talk about life here in this great country. And so let's return to Frank Hanna and his story about stewardship, about money, and about, well, what to do with it. So I think when we start to, you know, I've had people, because I had some business success, and I remember somebody once saying to me when I was talking to them about some of these issues, well, it's your money, you can do whatever you want with it. And I thought, well, that doesn't, I'm not sure I agree with that. That doesn't feel right. I know it's common to hear that, but it doesn't feel right. And I thought, why does it not feel right uh, and I, two reasons. One is I thought, do anything you want with it. That doesn't, that doesn't ever sound right. You know, I mean, I don't want to do evil things with it, okay? Even if it is my money. But the other part is, is it my money? I mean, when I die, it won't be my money anymore. It'll be somebody else's money. So it's not something like stays in my name forever. It belongs to this earth. It's sort of like, is the... Is the soil that's underneath my feet when I'm walking, is that, is that my soil? It's going to be here when I'm gone. And so I, I think the idea that we're passing through, that we have stewardship of things, but they're, they're not just ours to do with whatever we want. And, and this is a little bit radical thinking. You know, people used to view, uh, wives used to be regarded as chattel, as property. You could kind of, uh, like a cow. And, and there's some cultures that's, that's still the case, all right? Wives and children, you know, people used to negotiate off daughters, right, to form alliances and stuff, and they'd put together marriages, right, and they'd kind of treat the kids like they were this thing to be bartered. That's a real problem. That's a real problem against human dignity. So I think in the same way that we, we shouldn't think of human beings like that, I think we ought to, I don't think we ought to think of ourselves in that way. I, I don't know about this idea, you know, in America, I love freedom, I love that foundational concept of our country, but I don't believe that freedom is the greatest good. I think love is the greatest good. And interestingly enough, love almost always requires some sacrifice of freedom. 
So between love and freedom, love ranks higher. So f freedom's important, but I think even our, with our own lives, I think we're supposed to be stewards of our own lives. I did not earn my intellect, my energy level, where I was born, my parents. I mean, there's so many things. And so, you know, we know the phrase, uh, there's no such thing as a free lunch. And I look around, I think, the harmony I hear with my ears, the sunsets I see, these things are all free. I, ain't gotta, I didn't earn any of them. All those beautiful, sublime things, when my grandson smiles at me, I didn't earn that. I mean, you know, so many of these wonderful things I didn't earn. And so for people to say, oh, no, that's yours. It all belongs to you. I, I think uh, now I'm not in any way for the state, some government, getting involved in that. Okay, I think it almost always leads to ruin. I am for free markets, you know, minimal regulation, minimal government, because I think government kind of gives one group of human beings the capability of controlling another group of human beings, and, and it rarely turns out well. But I do think within our voluntary organizations with which you associate, our families, our workplaces, our churches, that we ought to take more of an approach that we are stewards of what we have. I did a couple of things in the book. One is I looked at the different kinds of ways we might spend money. So, you know, I think to spend money on what I call the fundamentals of life, you know, food and shelter and clothes, I think that's not only justified, that's, that's what we ought to do for our children and those we love, you know, spend money on that. And then I go through and I kind of divide between non-essential goods and essential goods. You know, there's some things that I have to spend for my work. Right? And they may be a luxury to somebody who's starving in South America, but for me and my work, you know, it's justified for me to spend that money. But I think if we, if we break down our goods in looking at what's fundamental, what's essential, what's non-essential, we can start to then assess, well, how, what, ought, what ought I to do with this non-essential wealth? This is not something that I really need. I don't want to pretend that I don't have any luxuries in my life. I do. I'm sitting in air conditioning right now. And for most of human history, that's been an enormous luxury. I enjoy golf, you know, and that's a, but, but I do think it's important to continually be mindful. I think part of the whole issue of living ethically with wealth is to have a mindfulness about it. A little bit like the way we can eat now. Now let's face it, one reason we're able to get fat is that centuries ago, there was no food in the winter because everything was snow covered. So we would eat as much as we could in the summer and the fall, almost like bears, and we would fatten up and then kind of live off of that because there wasn't much. We'd store up some food, but we didn't eat as much in the winter, right? Well, now we can eat all we want. And everybody in America can eat all they want, almost whenever they want. So what do we do? Now, it doesn't mean you shouldn't eat. It doesn't mean you shouldn't enjoy your food. It doesn't mean you can't have dessert every now and then. But you do have to be mindful. If you're not mindful, you're going to get unhealthy. You're going to eat so much you're unhealthy. So I think we kind of have to address wealth in the same way. You know, it's okay to spend some money. It's okay to, you know, to have a nice car. Do you need a Maserati? No, it's hard to say you need a Maserati. And I think you even have to say, if I got a Maserati, 
what's that gonna, how's that gonna affect me? How's that gonna affect my friends? How's that gonna affect my neighbors? If I've got young kids, how's that gonna affect my kids? What are my kids gonna think when dad's driving around in a Maserati? Now, there's nothing inherently sinful about a Maserati, but it does have an effect. There's nothing inherently sinful about chocolate cake, but if you eat a whole chocolate cake every day, there's gonna be ramifications, right? So I think a lot of living ethically, morally with wealth is this mindfulness of the fact that many of us have more than we need. And so just like most of us have more food available to us than we ought to eat. And, and in fact, if you look, I mean, probably the biggest epidemic, the biggest health epidemic in the United States of America today is obesity. That is the biggest, and it has all these ramifications, right? Because it's, food's good and it's hard to turn it down. And if you're not mindful, we all eat too much of it. So, so I think it's kind of the same thing with money and the, and the goods we can buy. I think it, it requires that mindfulness. We all rely on society's conventional wisdom. That, that, that we kind of have to do that to get through the day. You can't th think through everything on your own. You have to, but, but I think when it's the really important matters, that we do need to stop and be more deliberate. And that's why the things like what you should do with your money, that's really an important thing. That's why I wrote the book, okay? That's why it says what your money means and how to use it well. I have found that for, for almost everybody, rich, poor, or and in between, that how they think about their money, what they do to get their money, and what they do with their money affects their lives dramatically. And I believe most of us aren't deliberate about it, that we just swim along with the currents of the convention that are in our society. And that's okay when it comes to uh, whether it, uh, y y you know, mayonnaise is better on a hamburger than ketchup, okay? And, and you just rely on what other people say. That's fairly trivial stuff. When it comes to things like how you use your money, I think we have to be more thoughtful. And you've been listening to Frank Hanna and our Don't Be a Fool series. And again, if you know someone like Frank, a man or a woman in your neighborhood, who has great wisdom, a person who has accomplished things or knows things or people seek advice from, uh, send them to us, ouramericannetwork.org. Uh, from all around this great country, we know there is great wisdom. And the book, by the way, is What Your Money Means and How to Use It Well. And you can pick it up at Amazon.com. That's Frank Hanna we've been listening to. He's a father. He's a husband. He's a son. And he's an investor in the Atlanta area. And he's someone I know and whose family I know and admire. And again, send those that you know to OurAmericanNetwork.org. Don't be a fool. In a way, it's so much more than just advice. It's how to think about something as important as money and how to use it, how to spend it, and what it means to you, your family, and your community. This is Our American Stories.
is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show. Sports, history, arts, the culture, and your stories, too. Send them to us at ouramericannetwork.org. We'll put them up on the air, and we're doing that just right now. And by the way, some of these stories are beautiful. Some of these stories are hard. Some are both, and I think this one is. And this one comes to us from one of our listeners in Des Moines, Iowa, and at the home of the mighty WHO, one of the great heritage signals in this country. And it comes from Joy Neal Kidney. In World War II, her grandmother sent five sons to war. Only two, only two came home. Here, Joy shares how her family has honored these men. Neglected gravestones over Memorial Day. No flowers, no one to remember. This would never happen in our family. So I thought... Growing up, I knew that my mother's five brothers had served in World War II and that the three youngest had lost their lives. Their sepia-toned photographs, all in uniform, were a familiar part of our home. Those same pictures posed for decades on the chest of drawers in Grandma's house. I grew up with women who observed every decoration day, as it was called then. I could have asked for details about those young brothers, but knew the answers would bring tears, so I didn't. In fact, Memorial Day was a wonderful time for me as a child, as it meant an outing to the big town of Perry for lunch and shopping with Grandma, Mom, Sis Gloria, and Aunt Darlene. Either Mom or Darlene would pick up the other, both toting pails of pink peonies, coral bells, and blue iris from their own gardens. Carried in the trunk of the car... These spring blossoms were for the cemeteries. We'd drive the dusty gravel roads of Madison County, then the hills of Highway 25 to Grandma's house in Guthrie Center, where she would be waiting with her best flowers, including what she called little yellow buttons. Grandma's parents and some of her siblings are buried there at the Guthrie Cemetery, so we'd leave flowers there first to remember them, before heading east to Panther Corner. Perry is a few miles north of where the old Panther store used to stand. We'd skirt Perry's downtown toward our main mission, Violet Hill Cemetery in the northeast corner of town. Grandma's husband is buried there, and their three sons who were lost in the war. Or so I thought. The Wilson Stones are in the east section with stately evergreens, We three generations would solemnly deliver the flowers from the car to the Wilson Stones. Everything seemed hushed. Before the four names, Dale, Daniel, Claiborne J., and Clay Wilson, we'd secure metal vases with wires Mom had cut from coat hangers. Then we'd fill them with our pastel bouquets. How nice they look, Grandma would mention. I remember her shedding tears there only once. The mood lightened on the drive toward downtown. I don't remember what the grown-ups ate, but we young sisters were treated to hamburgers and Cokes in a real cafe east of the library. Then shopping and visiting. For young girls from an Iowa farm near the small town of Dexter, this day was a yearly treat. When it was time to start back home, 
we'd always drive by the old Wilson acreage, a mile south on 16th Street. Grandma and her daughters always wanted to see how it looked after so many years and how much the trees had grown that they had planted in the 1940s. Through the decades, different family members would make that annual Memorial Day trip to Perry with Grandma. One or two of Aunt Darlene's sons went along, and later on, even my own young son. Grandma died in 1987, leaving a cedar chest full of old postcards, letters, pictures, and the terrible telegrams. After Mom and Aunt Darlene relived the war by reading through them, they shared them with me. I realized for the very first time that only their youngest brother, Junior, is buried in the Perry Cemetery. Danny Wilson, a P-38 pilot who was killed in action in Austria, is buried in France. Dale Wilson, the co-pilot on a B-25, was lost off the coast of New Guinea with his crew. Only God knows where their remains lie. I was determined that when Mom and Aunt Darlene, who is Dale's twin, got to the place that they could no longer make the trip to Perry to remember their brothers and parents for Memorial Day, I'd always get it done. So I thought. My health got to the place where I could no longer make the trip. One day, my husband and I stopped by just to see the stones once more. I realized that because Dale's official date of death is listed as 1946, months after the war ended, no one would understand that he'd been a war casualty. A few additions to all three stones would tell more of the story of what this one family had endured. Mom and Darlene agreed, and the information was added. One stone commemorates Dale and Danny, making clear that they were both killed in action. The center stone marks the grave of Junior, whose P-40 exploded in formation training in Texas in August 1945 at the very end of the war. The brothers were aged 22, 21, and 20. Their father, Clabe, died next year of a stroke and a broken heart, surely another casualty of the war. Even though no family members have recently remembered the Wilsons for Memorial Day, the price that our freedoms cost this one Dallas County family must never be forgotten. And it's not forgotten here, Joy. And thanks for that peace. And Danny, Dale, and Junior, the sacrifices won't be forgotten. And here in our American stories, we don't forget. That's what we do here. As often as we can, bring back history to life. Because it's still alive, folks, and it matters. These stories matter. You know, it brings to mind the Sullivan brothers. I've been reading about them recently. All five boys in that family died in World War II. They were all on the same ship, the USS Juno. And on November 13, 1942, it was torpedoed down off the coast of the Solomon Islands by a Japanese destroyer. 687 sailors on board, 100 went into the water. Only 10 survived the elements and shark attacks. And it also brings to mind a personal story, my own family story, a story my mom told me, and I have her brother's Purple Heart. And boy, the way they printed out Purple Hearts in World War II. It was the summer of 44, and my mom remembered a black government car pulling up to her apartment building in West New York, New Jersey. 
The men stepped out of the car and walked up the stairs. A dozen or so families lived in that building, and several had loved ones who'd volunteer to fight. Her brother John was one of them. He signed up when he was 18, and he paratrooped behind enemy lines right around the time of D-Day. She told me she felt terrible praying that it would be someone else's door those men knocked on. And then she heard the footsteps stop in front of her door. She was 13. She told me she never heard her mom cry so hard when those men knocked on that door. Her mom didn't need to open it to comprehend the news. Her dad barely cried, but she never again saw him enjoy his life. He'd lost not just his son, but his only son, my mom told me. He'd lost his bloodline. And so here in our American stories, we celebrate the fallen soldiers and we honor their sacrifices and all of the men and women serving our country in uniform here and abroad. This is our American stories, Joy, Neil, Kidney's family story. So many other family stories, families whose sons, daughters, loved ones, fathers, husbands paid the ultimate price. continue here on Our American Stories. Now it's time to visit a piece of American folklore and to separate fact from fiction in the tale of Robert Johnson at the crossroads. Here's Jesse. Many of us have heard the story of a young black man who went down to the crossroads at midnight somewhere in Mississippi looking to make a deal with the devil in exchange for superhero-like guitar powers. Legend has it that it all went down at the intersection of 61 and 49 in Clarksdale. It's a busy intersection for a small town. On an island, in the middle of the intersection, three big blue guitars with a sign underneath that says, The Crossroads. This is where all the maps and postcards say it is. But is it really the same crossroads that all those songs were written about? If you ask that question around here, you get a lot of different answers. Some people insist it's here in Clarksdale. Others say it's down the road, closer to the Mississippi River and Rosedale at the intersection of Highway 8 and Highway 1. But some people around here say that the original crossroads is out in the country, just a few miles east of Cleveland, Mississippi, just south of an old cotton plantation. At its peak, Dockery had around 3,000 workers. And while they weren't exactly employees by today's standards... They weren't exactly slaves, either. The plantation was established in 1895. The owner, Will Dockery, built a reputation for treating people fairly by offering contracts to laborers. Some became sharecroppers, who would work a portion of the land in return for a share of the crop. Now, the Dockery's were unusual. Mr. Will did not run the blues singers off. Most plantations, when a blues singer showed up, uh, the idea was that everybody was going to get drunk and they were going to swap girlfriends and stab each other. And so 
The plantation owners didn't want that. They wanted these men to come to work on Monday morning, so they would run them off. Mr. Will didn't do that. Now, we don't know why exactly he didn't do that, but I like to think um, that since he was not only a generous man, but uh, he expected and wanted the best from people, I think that, that he wanted them to have some sort of entertainment, something to do, you know, and, and because it was so, um, what's a good word, plain here then, because with no radio, no TV, no other form of entertainment, uh, you know, these people, the only thing they could hear during the week would be lightning and hummingbirds uh, and thunder and, uh, and the wind in the trees. And so all of a sudden these wild bluesmen would show up uh, and they had an isolated, controlled group of people that they could control with this bridge. It was a fully self-sustained community with its own railroad terminal, general store, post office, school, doctor, and church. They used the watering trough for baptism. A hundred mules could drink it dry in one hour, 25 mules at a time. But the thing that makes it so important is that when they people first moved here uh, and they got baptized in the river, once in a while, one of them would get eaten by an alligator or, or get bit by a snake. So I just assume that most people, when they get baptized, don't want to meet God on the same day that they get baptized. So they moved and started baptizing in this mule water trough because it was clean, clear, pretty water. And so hundreds and hundreds of people were baptized there. I still have numerous people every year in their 80s and 90s come back here to want to see where they were baptized as children. This is the, uh, the birthplace of the blues? Well... You know, B.B. King came here in 1973 and stood in front of the seat house and said if you had to pick one spot, he said, you might as well say it all started right here. And what I think he meant was, uh, obviously he's dead and we can't ask him anymore, but what I think he meant was uh, that probably no one knows where the first blues note was written or the first blues song or the first blues lick but so much of the education of the blues went on here at Dockery because Charlie Patton came here as a child. You see, Charlie Patton was born in Hines County, Mississippi, near the town of Edwards, and lived most of his life in Sunflower County in the Mississippi Delta. Now, most sources say that he was born in April of 1891, but the years 1881, 1885, and 1887 have also been suggested. In the year 1900, his parents, Bill and Annie Patton, moved the family to Dockery seeking better treatment and better pay. A lot of Mississippi blues men came through to make money playing music. And eventually, many of them would show up just to hear young Charlie Patton play guitar. Charlie learned how to play the guitar from uh, Henry Sloan. Henry Sloan, a few years later, got on the train and went to Chicago and never came back again. And so Charlie picked up from there and began to play all over the Delta and was one of the earliest recorded blues singers. But look who came here to play with Charlie. Uh, Howlin' Wolf was a child here. Uh, Charlie taught him how to play the guitar here. Pop Staples of the famous Staples singers from Chicago was a child here. Charlie taught him everything he needed to know about being Pop Staples, he claims. He told Robert Palmer that in, uh, when Robert wrote the book Deep Blues in 1950, he interviewed Howlin' Wolf, he interviewed Pops, he interviewed all of them that were still alive. And they all said that they came here to play with Charlie to learn the different um, licks and see what was new. Uh, Willie Brown played here with Charlie a lot. He was his running buddy. And Eric Clapton says there are things that Willie Brown can do that no human can do now unless they could see Willie live do it. So, you know, it must be pretty difficult what Willie did. And so then Willie went on to play with Robert Johnson. Well, Robert Johnson obviously got influenced by Charlie through Willie because they played together. Uh, uh, Willie played with Charlie first for a number of years, and then they had a falling out over a woman, I'm told. 
and then he went to be with uh, Robert because Robert was the next big up-and-coming star, and so he wanted, he was a backup guitarist. This place was important for blues musicians back in the day because there were a lot of people out here in the middle of nowhere with nothing to do with their free time, and they were being paid in the plantation's own coins. What they would do is play for free, any of them, here at the commissary. There were no juke joints in the Delta at the turn of the century, you know that, I mean. A juke joint is another term for a nightclub here in the South. There were some in New Orleans, some in Memphis, but the Delta was cut and dry, life and death. You know, there was just nothing like that here. And so, these bluesmen weren't stupid. What they did was, they paid these people at this house, and they called it a frolicking house. They paid them to move all the furniture out of the house on Saturday afternoon. The bluesmen had bought giant mirrors for each wall. Remember, no indoor potties, no electricity, no radios, no fans, no air condition, no nothing. Had absolutely nothing. So, these giant mirrors would be on every wall in this house, even though it was a small house. If there were two rooms, there'd be eight mirrors. They would put a coal oil lantern in front of each mirror at dark and raise the windows. That house would look like it's on fire compared to all the rest of them, which were pitch black dark. People couldn't even afford kerosene back then. And so the bluesmen would play for free on the commissary front porch, walk across the one-lane bridge. That's the perfect setup because they'd have takers right here. They wouldn't let you across the bridge unless you paid 25 cents to come to the frolicking house. So a 1,000 grown men at 25 cents you know, you just came from Oxford, right? I graduated from Ole Miss twice over there. And some people say that means I can't read and write, but I can count. And that's 250 bucks a night. And a brand new car in 1915 didn't cost but $210. So Charlie Patton was making enough money to buy a brand new car every Saturday night when he played, if he played at a big place like this. Aside from good money, there was something else that made Dockery plantations so popular with musicians. Will Dockery builds a railroad leading in and out of the plantation in order to feed thousands of people. One day, a young man by the name of Robert Johnson rolled into Will Dockery's plantation with a guitar on his back looking to play some songs for money. He couldn't play as good, and they had probably been drinking a little bit and all that, and so they acted ugly to him and told him he was probably a worthless uh, guitar player. So what did he do? He took his wounds and went down to the depot down here and licked his wounds all night and, 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 and paced back and forth. The train didn't come to the next morning. And that's where all the old people at Dockery said this story took place. And that he paced around at the, at the crossroads and supposedly could play better the next day. I've been down there a bunch of times and my hair ain't turned black and I can't play the guitar. <laughs> so I'm not sure that the devil resides down at the crossroads. But Howlin' Wolf tells us what really happened. Howlin' Wolf says he got on the train here at Dockery, rode to Hazelhurst, because he had been down there before, got off on the platform. There was a woman he took a fancy to that was 25 years older than him took a fancy to her, married her that same day, and started performing there and, and, and ran into a man named Ike Zimmerman, who was a minstrel player from the East Coast. It was in Hazelhurst. He listened to him play, asked him to play again. He couldn't play the same song twice exactly. So Ike told him, he said, you'll never be worth nothing unless you can play everything perfectly in three minutes because recordings don't last longer than three minutes. But he said, you got to get tight. You got to tighten up. So... What did Robert do? Robert stayed in Hazelhurst almost a year. So supposedly it was overnight, but it really took a year of hard work. Got tired of that 25-year-old woman, divorced her, got back on the train, stepped off at Dockery, and he could play everything perfectly in three minutes, his whole repertoire. But it's easy to see how these stories can get blown way out of proportion. The story isn't even native to Mississippi. 
who just happened to stick with Robert Johnson because he became famous. You know what else isn't native to Mississippi? The slide guitar. Just look up a picture of Charlie Patton. You'll see his hand reaching up over the top of the neck to play the slide for a reason. This is the only known picture of Charlie Patton. But the most interesting thing about the picture, he's playing in the Hawaiian style. And the Hawaiians came here to the Delta. You remember, no radios, no TVs in the 1880s, nothing. And so these Hawaiians came here because they could make tons of money by playing for all these people out in the country. And so they brought the slide and they played on top of their guitar. And so he was influenced by the Hawaiians. He had to see them as a child, you know, and, and was influenced in that wah, 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 wah. You know, we're never going to really find the crossroads. But we did find the birthplace of the blues. And we did find where Robert Johnson really learned how to play the guitar. And it didn't even cost him his soul. For Our American Stories in Mississippi, I'm Jesse Edwards. And great job as always, Jesse, and we love doing music stories. We broadcast out of Oxford, Mississippi, about an hour south of Memphis. And this story, well, it hits close to home here for all the people who love the blues here and around the world. The Crossroads story, Robert Johnson's story, here on Our American Stories.